Wild Wanderers, and welcome to this, the very first episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara. So since this is the first episode, I want to start out today by, by introducing myself, because you might be thinking, what qualifies this Yahoo to host a nature podcast? So a little bit about me. First of all, I'm a lifelong nature lover. I grew up camping, fishing, canoeing, playing in the woods, catching toads and tadpoles and lightning bugs, and I have my parents to thank for instilling that in me. I've always enjoyed being outside in nature, and I've always been a wanderer. I wonder what bird that is that's singing. I wonder what insect this is. I wonder where that trail goes. And I have a stack of field guides. I have a shelf of field guides that is a testament to that wondering. So I was in the Boy Scouts, I grew up, I went to college, um, and I got a degree in psychology, followed by a master's degree in applied behavior analysis. So now you might be thinking, how does a degree in psychology qualify me to make a, a nature podcast? And the answer is, it doesn't. I mean, I, I can make the argument that a fascination with observing human behavior is what led me to psychology, and that translates to a fascination with observing the natural world, but that's a bit of a stretch. So I'll just say, but wait, there's more. So my wife's in the Air Force and I spent about 20 years off and on working a variety of jobs in the human services field. And it served me well. It, it worked out quite well with all our moves. But in 2007, three important events occurred. First, our oldest child was born eight weeks early. So second, I quit working to be a stay-at-home dad full-time. And those two events led to event number three, which was I had my midlife crisis. Now, a lot of men stereotypically go out and buy a sports car. I had the slightly panicky feeling that I should have pursued a career in a nature-related field or that I hadn't done enough outside in nature. So I went back to school and I got a degree in natural resource management through Oregon State University. Now, I want to point out that this was 2007, and I, it was an online degree program long before words like COVID and Zoom and social distancing were a part of our regular vocabulary. So anyways, in 2019, we were moving back to Nebraska, and I was looking to go back to work full-time, but I really didn't want to go back into the human services field. Now, the house we bought backed up to Fontenelle Forest Nature Center. And if you're not familiar with Fontenelle Forest Nature Center, it's one of the largest privately owned nature centers in the country. It's 1,500 acres of woods and wetlands that were literally right in my backyard. You went out my back gate, you crossed a gravel road, and you were in Fontenelle Forest. So I got hired by Fontenelle Forest as an adult programs educator. My primary job was creating nature-related education programs and taking those out to elder care facilities. They would book me to come out as part of their activities calendar. And what a great job. I had 200 programs a year, and not only did I get to indulge my inner nature nerd and share nature with folks that weren't able to get outside like they used to, but a lot of times, more importantly, it gave them an opportunity to share their experiences with me, and that was often the best part of the programs. 
Now, when COVID forced these facilities to close their doors to outside visitors, I was able to keep doing some programs virtually, even after my, my family and I moved to Virginia. But that meant that now, as things started to open back up, I kind of found myself out of a job, but also presented with an opportunity. And that opportunity was to start my own business, Dispatches from the Forest, and keep doing a job that I love. I'm offering programs in my local area. I get to keep doing virtual programs. And of course, I've added this podcast. So here we are at the start of the very first episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. I hope you'll learn something new. I hope you'll follow me. I hope you'll consider throwing some support my way by by joining my Patreon page. But most of all, I hope you'll enjoy it. So enough about me. Let's talk about cicadas. If you ask me, I think cicadas are the signature sound of summer. In the late spring or early summer, they emerge from the ground, shed their exoskeleton, and then buzz and rattle as loudly as possible to try and attract a mate. There are some species, known as annual cicadas, that show up year after year. They'll spend between two and five years underground, but every year some members of the species will will show up to provide the soundtrack for summer. There's at least four species of annual cicada in each of the lower 48 states, and California has over 80 different species. Other species, known as periodic cicadas, spend either 13 or 17 years underground before returning in large numbers. And when I say large, I'm talking about trillions of cicadas. In the U.S., periodic cicadas are only found in parts of the Midwestern and Eastern states, and... If you hadn't heard, 2021 was the year of the 17-year cicada known as Brood 10. And if you see it written, it's not Brood X, it's a Roman numeral 10. And I got a chance to see and to hear Brood 10 in Northern Virginia this year, and it was really impressive. Although they look like little aliens, the only thing you have to fear from cicadas is that all that noise is going to disturb your afternoon nap. So let's go in for a closer look and shine our species spotlight on cicadas. Cicadas are sometimes confused with locusts, probably because both sometimes appear in large swarms. But locusts and cicadas are very, very different. Locusts are a species of grasshopper that might swarm under the right conditions. This is generally a period of drought followed by a period of rapid plant growth. A swarm of locusts can be devastating. Accounts from early settlers describe swarms of locusts descending and eating not only all their crops, but the clothes right off their backs and even the wool off the sheep. Cicadas, on the other hand, yeah, they're big and weird looking, but they they actually don't eat once they emerge from the ground. Whether they're annual or periodic, when the nymphs emerge from underground, they only have a few items on their to-do list. Number one, molt. Number two, make a whole lot of noise. Number three, mate. Number four, lay eggs. And number five, die. That's it. Sounds simple enough, right? Well, let's get into the nitty gritty. Let's let's get more into the life cycle of the cicada. Cicadas spend the majority of their lives underground as a nymph. 
like I mentioned earlier, two to five years for annual cicadas and either 13 or 17 years for periodic cicadas. Now, this type of life cycle isn't uncommon in the insect world. Lightning bug larvae spend several years underground as a glowworm before emerging, and dragonflies spend most of their lives up to about five years in the water as nymphs. Like cicadas, the adult form of dragonflies and lightning bugs is brief. It's kind of their final hurrah. But even among insects with a similar life cycle, 13 and 17 years is an exceptionally long time. So that begs the question, what's the benefit? Why, why have such a drawn out developmental span? Well, nobody knows for sure, but there's a few theories. Some entomologists have suggested that this strategy evolved as a sort of defense mechanism, an insurance policy, if you will, against predators. It's a strategy called predator satiation. Emerging in such massive numbers, over 1.5 million per acre in some areas, means that most of the population is likely to live long enough to mate and reproduce, even if a whole bunch get eaten. Again, it's a strategy used by lots of plants and animals. For example, bullfrogs lay 20,000 eggs at a time. And cattails produce a quarter million seeds per seed head. If you produce a massive number of offspring, a massive number of them are likely to survive. Now, there are other theories about the 13 and 17 year time frame, which center on the fact that these are both prime numbers. So one theory suggests that because they're prime numbers, it prevents predator populations from sinking their own reproductive cycles with that of the cicada. That helps the cicada avoid facing larger numbers of predators when they do emerge. Another theory is that it prevents hybridization between cicada species. Periodic cicadas emerge earlier in the year than annual species. They're gone, or at least done mating, by the time the annual cicadas emerge. And the timing of different periodic broods makes them unlikely to encounter one another. Whatever the reason, an emergence of periodic cicadas is a pretty cool event to witness. Now, even among annual species, there seems to be some strategies to avoid hybridization. Different species have different sounds. A scissors grinder cicada sounds like someone sharpening scissors on a grinding wheel. Which is very different from a dog day cicada. Other species also sing at different times of day. The northern dusk singer sings at, you guessed it, dusk, after a lot of other cicada species have kind of quieted down. Okay, back to nymphs. Cicada nymphs feed on the juices of plant roots, generally within about two feet of the surface. Now, during their time underground, the nymphs go through five instar, or intermediate, stages in their development. With periodic cicadas, it's the second instar that's the one that takes the longest to mature. As they mature, the nymphs might move deeper into the soil to feed on larger roots. When it finally reaches the fifth instar, the cicada nymph is ready to emerge. For annual cicadas, some individuals reach this stage every year. Periodic cicadas, on the other hand, are developmentally synchronized. All, or nearly all, members of the brood mature at the same time. 
Now, occasionally there's what's called a premature emergence or a straggling where some members of the brood emerge early, sometimes as much as four years early. But hey, premature emergence happens sometimes. It's perfectly natural. It's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's highly unlikely that these stragglers will find a mate since most of the brood is still underground. So when they're ready to emerge, fifth instar nymphs will construct a tunnel to the surface and wait for the soil temperature to reach a critical value. For periodic cicada species, this is generally around 65 degrees, 8 inches down. So that means somewhere between late April and early June, depending on the region. Annual species like the dog day cicada don't emerge until July or August when temperatures are warmer, also known as the dog days of summer, and might be triggered to emerge by changes in the plant root juices that they're feeding on. The nymphs will climb anywhere from a few inches up to about 100 feet on a vertical surface like a tree or a building and undergo one final molt. They'll leave that fifth instar exoskeleton clinging to whatever they climbed. When my kids were little, they used to love collecting as many cicada shells as they could find. We had buckets full. Now, I've been able to watch a cicada shed that nymph exoskeleton, and that is a very cool thing to see also. Once this final molt is completed, the adult cicadas will move up to the trees, spend about six days waiting for their new exoskeleton to completely harden before they move on to the next item on the checklist, making a lot of noise. Although there are many different species of cicadas, like I mentioned, each species has a different, for lack of a better term, song. We're putting song in quotation marks because they don't make that sound with vocal cords and they don't use stridulation, which is when an animal rubs two body parts together, like crickets rubbing their wings together or grasshoppers, which rub a leg against their forewing. Instead, cicadas have a special organ called a timbre. It's located in the abdomen, and the timbre is a corrugated structure of the exoskeleton with a membrane that vibrates rapidly to produce sound. Inside the abdomen is a large chamber. It's actually a modified trachea, and that amplifies the sound. Male cicadas will group together to form what's called a chorus, and together they can produce sounds that are in excess of 100 decibels, which is about as loud as... Yeah, your typical gas-powered lawnmower, and among the loudest insect-produced sounds in the world. Males in a chorus have a much higher success rate when it comes to mating. Now that they're making a lot of noise, it's time for item number three, mating. Males will alternate bouts of singing with short flights in search of a receptive female. Receptive female cicadas respond with specifically timed wing flicks. When approaching a female, the male will make a distinctive courtship sound. Males might mate with more than one female, but generally females only mate once. Mating? Check. The next step is only for the ladies. It's time to lay eggs. The female cicada cuts a V-shaped slit in the bark of young twigs and lays around 20 eggs. She'll repeat this process many, many more times, laying about 600 eggs in all. Now, the twigs where she does this might wither and they might droop, but the damage to a mature tree is both minor and temporary. 
Smaller saplings or newly transplanted trees can suffer more damage, but if you know you're going to have an emergence, you can protect those with netting. The eggs hatch in 6 to 10 weeks, the nymphs drop to the ground, burrow in, and the life cycle starts all over again. Nothing left to do now but cross off number 5 on the list, death. The time from the final molt to the final breath only spans about five or six weeks. And once they die, all those cicada bodies return nutrients to the soil, and all the tunnels that they created when the nymphs emerged allows water and air into the soil. So ultimately, it improves the health of the forest. I like to think that all that noise made by cicadas is a grand celebration of life. Joining me today is Jody Green. Uh, who's an urban entomologist with the University of Nebraska. Is that correct? Did I get that yeah, right? I'm with the uh, Nebraska Extension. Okay. And um, thank you again for joining me today. Um, and you're an urban entomologist. What does an urban entomologist do? So I would say when people ask that, I say it's the stuff people love to hate. <laughs> so it's a treat getting to talk about cicadas and butterflies and pollinators, but my specialty are termites, cockroaches, ants, and bed bugs, because those are pests mostly, you know, sure. insect pests that invade houses, homes, businesses. They just really bug people. Sometimes, you know, health pests as well. So um, okay. urban area means where the people are. Yeah. All right, well, today's topic is cicadas. So I'll give you a chance to, to step outside your, your pest zone there. And what's the difference between annual cicadas and periodical cicadas? Okay, so we have cicadas every year. And those would be, we call those annual cicadas or dog day cicadas. So it only takes a couple of years for them to develop, but we get those every year. Um, a lot of them, I mean, they're different colors. They could be green, they can be brown. They've got different, you know, species. So they sound different. They have different calls. The periodical cicadas, these are very, a special group of, of cicadas and they only emerge every 13 years or 17 years. There's two different types. And the, when they come out, they're called different broods. So if you think about it as like a, a high school reunion or something, they have different names or different broods. Okay. And, and brood 10 is emerging out east right now. So yeah. they're a, and they're a 17 year species. Yes, very jealous. So um, what kind of impact do these do these brood emergences have? On on like in particular the, in the on the environment, are they damaging to things? Do they do they eat up a lot of vegetation? No. So when they emerge, they actually don't eat very much as adults. They may like, I don't even think they have time for that. Their life <laughs> above ground is all about mating actually. But um, yeah, they do very little damage. If they do any damage to trees, it's the young trees and nets through overpositioning. So that's when the female wants to um, deposit eggs for the next generation. Sure. So that might be some damage, but they do very little damage to the environment. Uh, they're great uh, food for a lot of different animals and all the holes in the ground, it actually helps aerate. And actually even the damage that I just talked about with twigs, some fruit trees, they can actually, you know, it actually naturally prunes those twigs and sometimes, um, you know, better fruit years can occur after periodical oh. cicadas. Okay, so they're actually pretty beneficial for the environment. Yeah, they can be. 
That's awesome. It's the people um, that have problems <laughs> with them usually. Right, because they look they look scarier, they look weird, so people don't like them. Yeah, and you know, people are question like, what are they doing? What are they doing this whole time? Why, you know, why are they coming to bug us? And yeah. um, so, so do you know anything about the massospora fungus? I've read a lot about that recently. Yeah, everybody wants to know about the cicada butt fungus. <laughs> I, I personally don't study it. I know um, Dr. Matt Casson um, out of is it uh, West Virginia University studies that, and a lot of different fungi. He must be a really fun guy, but he tweets <laughs> a lot too. If you uh, yeah, you've probably read a lot of his things. But yeah, people get really obsessed with this um, mass massospora um, fungi because it. It's like a sexually transmitted disease for cicadas. Right. And I think what's it called? The flying salt shaker of death. You know, there's a lot of, um, I guess, popular media about them. And if people hate cicadas, then it's something to, you know, kind of pay back. Right. But um, yeah, what I know about them is that it's it's very common in the, the periodical cicada and it doesn't really affect their activities in terms of, uh, of mating. But um and it's not a it's not a threat to them in terms of reducing numbers or anything like that. No, during like emergence years of periodical cicadas, I, that they, there's like literally like hundreds of thousands, and so it it won't decrease that. But so what I read about it that I thought was interesting though is that the fungus produces two compounds. One is an amphetamine. And the other is psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. So yeah, you've so it's got like a psychedelic. It's like a psychedelic sex drug, yeah. right? And then and then they pass it on to each other through mating, and then their butt falls off, and then you just keep on going. So, you know, it it's like one of those things where it like numbs numbs the pain or something. You know, maybe it's you know, and even back way back, I can't remember the year. I don't have my um, Bruton uh, book, but like. So I'm, I'm not sure of the year, but the, you know, one of the early naturalists or people that studied um, the cicadas, they were just like, you know, this, this thing, yes, you know, something about their abdomen, but they don't care. They just keep singing till they die. <laughs> oh, well, it's a short life. You gotta, you gotta live it to yeah. its fullest. Yeah. And they do, they do. It's screaming and mating all the way. So are, are there any other threats to cicada populations that people should be concerned about? You mean if they want to keep them around? Yes. Yeah, I think when it comes to like urbanization, building roads over top of where, you know, big emergencies would be, floods, um, we are definitely losing habitat for, you know, periodical cicadas to emerge. And where they once may have been, if there was some kind of natural disaster like that, or construction or housing developments being put up, then yeah, you know, I sure. mean, them emerging in the middle of the Pentagon, I mean, they <laughs> have that space. But yeah. in places that it's all just concrete, they're not going to be able to emerge. So, um, you know, there is one brood that has been totally wiped out and no longer exists. So, um, you know, it's possible. So one last question. I was also reading that cicadas were edible and that the Native Americans used to roast them. So have you ever eaten a cicada? I have not, but I, had, <laughs> I did say that if I ever got to a place for brood 
10, I would try one. And there are a lot of people out there developing recipes and on different social media. So I think if you do get an, a hold of any of those um, periodic cicadas out there, you should try some. All right. So are unless they you're allergic, unless are you're allergic to shellfish. That's right. And my mom said that she read that they taste like shrimp. Yeah, they so probably do. Cicada scampi might be, you know, something to try. True. Can you eat the annual ones? Um, I imagine you could, but I would be careful about that. Okay. <laughs> you know, well, it depends where they're coming from, right? I mean, you want a newly emerged one where it's all soft. So, I mean, if they're emerging in your backyard, you could. Uh, I know that there's a warning against maybe eating like too many. Um, so, okay. So thanks again, Jody. You're welcome. All Bye, right. Tim. Bye. Have a good day. So I want to talk a little bit more about the Massospora fungus, or as Jody called it, the butt fungus. Massospora is a parasitic fungus that infects about 5% of cicadas. Each species of cicada has a corresponding Massospora fungus. So the fungus that infects periodic cicadas will lay dormant in the soil for 13 or 17 years, waiting for a brood emergence. Initial or stage one infection occurs when the nymphs dig their way to the surface and encounter the waiting spores. The fungus then grows inside the abdomen, rendering the infected cicada infertile and eventually causing the rear part of their abdomen to fall off. The white chalky plug that's revealed is the fungus producing spores, which is why, as Jody mentioned, they're sometimes called flying salt shakers of death. The fungus produces two compounds, cathinone, which is an amphetamine, and psilocybin, which is the hallucinogen found in magic mushrooms. So we've got a bunch of cicadas hopped up on amphetamines while also tripping balls. Now, before anybody gets any funny ideas and does something stupid, the amount of these compounds found in an infected cicada is very small. It's more than enough to make the cicada high, but for a person, it's not even close. In the cicada, the combination of these compounds makes them go into a mating frenzy, attempting to mate uncontrollably, even to the extent of the males mimicking the wing flicks of the females to lure other males in, thus spreading the spores of the fungus. Cicadas that are past the massospora fungus by other cicadas contract what's called stage 2 infection. In stage 2 infection, the fungus produces a very different type of spore. These spores are called resting spores. They have thicker walls and are not directly infectious to adult cicadas. Instead, these are the spores that will lie dormant in the soil, waiting to infect the next generation. Now, periodic cicadas, just on account of their sheer numbers, do have an impact on other species. For example, in the year before a brood emergence, tree growth declines because of the increased feeding on the root systems by the growing nymphs. Moles do well the year before a brood emergence because they feed on the nymphs, but mole populations decline the year after a brood emergence because of the decrease in food supply. Wild turkeys benefit from brood emergences. They gain nutrition by eating the adults on the ground at the end of their life cycle. I can't help but wonder if turkey fattened on cicada would have a slightly shrimpy flavor. The temporary damage from cicada egg laying may reduce production of nuts and have a slight negative impact on squirrel populations. Now, plenty of animals will eat cicadas when they're available. 
birds, snakes, rodents, possums, even fish, just to name a few. I mean, basically, if it eats insects, cicada is just another item on the menu. But only one animal targets cicadas specifically, and it might not be for the reason you think, and that is the cicada killer wasp. Sometimes called a cicada hawk or a sand hornet, even though it's not a hornet, in appearance, the cicada killer wasp is damn near the stuff of nightmares. I mean, first of all, it's a wasp, and it looks like, well, a wasp. And second of all, it's a big freaking wasp. The females get up to about two inches long, which makes it one of the biggest wasps in the eastern United States. You know those 2020 murder hornets you heard so much about? Looks-wise, at least, cicada killers will give them a run for their money. But that said, they differ from other wasps in some very important ways. Cicada killers are solitary. They don't group together socially to create a swarm like a paper wasp or yellow jacket. While males are sometimes seen in groups battling each other for breeding rights, and females sometimes share a burrow, cicada killers are not aggressive. Females only use their sting to paralyze their prey, not to defend their nest, and males, well, they don't even have a stinger. So while females can sting you, the only reason they would is if you try to grab them, if you accidentally stepped on one, or it somehow got caught in your clothes. Now, I don't know about you, but no way am I touching a two-inch-long wasp, even if it's not aggressive. So really, in spite of the fearsome looks in the name, unless you're a cicada, you don't have much to fear from the cicada killer wasp. Cicada killers are ground nesting. The female digs a burrow by dislodging soil with her jaws and then pushing it out with her hind legs, which have a special spine just for pushing dirt. The burrow will be about half an inch in diameter and 10 to 20 inches deep on average. Now, after digging the burrow, the female wasp goes out hunting for cicadas. She'll capture a cicada, usually in flight, and deliver a sting to paralyze it. Then she'll carry it back to her nest. Now, the cicada can outweigh her by about twice, so the wasps are often seen carrying the cicada up a tree to gain altitude for the return flight. After they return with their prize, the wasp will put the cicada in a cell in the burrow and deposit an egg on it. Female wasps get to be about twice as large as males, so male eggs are deposited on one cicada, but female eggs may have two or even three cicadas placed in the cell with them. Now, I find it fascinating that the wasp knows the sex of the egg. Once the eggs are deposited, the female closes the cell with dirt and digs a new cell. Now, she'll eventually dig ten or more. It only takes a couple of days for the eggs to hatch, and the larvae, which are called a grub, consume the cicadas. For the record, adult cicadas feed on nectar and sap. They don't even eat cicadas. The larvae mature in about two weeks, they build a cocoon, and they overwinter in the burrow at this stage of development. In the spring, they'll pupate, turning into adults that will emerge in late June or early July, about the same time as the cicadas emerge. Cicada killer wasps only produce one generation per year. Adults don't overwinter. So just like their prey, once they emerge, they're on a tight schedule. And with that, Wild Wanderers, we find ourselves at the end of our very first episode. I want to thank Jody Green again for joining me to share her knowledge of cicadas. I want to thank you for listening. Don't forget to leave us a like. Follow us so you'll be notified when a new episode comes out. You can also support the podcast by heading over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash 
dispatches from the forest and becoming a patron. There's some pretty cool merchandise and, and other things available when you join. And hopefully this is just the beginning. We'll be adding more benefits as we grow. So this is your chance to get in on the ground floor. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Do you have a message for me? I can be reached by email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast without express written permission.